expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. So, how about that joint? Yeah. Good idea. What type of pot is this? It's Colombian. That's a lie. What? This isn't Colombian. I don't even think it's pot. That's what the guy who sold to me said it was. Well, the guy who sold it to you is a liar. So are you. Don't get upset. I just won't buy it from him anymore. Are you all right? Where are those plaster Paris paperweights anyway? I mean, that's what I came down here for in the first place. Well, that's not entirely true. I came to see you. But where are the paperweights? That's what I want to see now. What's the matter? I said I want to see a plaster of Paris bagel and cream cheese paperweight. Now cough it up. Right now? Yes, right now. They're in Kiki's bedroom. Then get them. Because as we sit here chatting, there are important papers flying rampant around my apartment because I don't have anything to hold them down with. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, May 3rd, 2012. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Two very contentious issues to share with our audience today, eh, Robert? The issue of abortion and the issue of marijuana legalization or decriminalization, however you want to look at it. So uh, that's basically our two themes today. If you want to call in and join us on one or the other of them, the number to call is 519-661-3600. And as always, you can tell us what you think about the show and some of the topics we do by writing us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. And today on the show, we'll be doing the whole abortion issue. It's been revived in the legislature or in the parliament, hasn't it, Robert? Yeah, private members and, bill. Uh, yeah. So you'll be dealing with that in the second half of the show. Mm-hmm. And I thought I would start off um, this first half of the show uh, sort of trying to serve two purposes. One, we didn't ignore the 420 event when it came by on the, in London here, you know, the whole annual pot celebration deal, or protest, I guess. I don't know whether it's a celebration or a protest. But um, And, of course, our good friend Mark Emery has been sitting in a jail in the U.S. and Mississippi now. He's there for two and a half years. He's about halfway through. And I thought it might be a good time to commemorate some of the things and why Mark is there and some of the debate that began because of this year's 420. Here in London, we had this uh, pathetic representatives of the Occupy movement who have apparently taken over the 420 annual pot protest. And unfortunately, they're no friends to freedom, and uh, I would say they're the last people to look to for direction and guidance on how to effectively end Canada's and the world's you know, outrageous prohibition uh, laws on cannabis particularly. So for the record, I just want to say I've got nothing in common with occupations or people who think in occupation terms because they're just part of that red disease of collectivism we were talking about earlier. The rot that makes prohibition laws possible in the first place, right, Robert? I mean, <laughs> it's the state, isn't they're it? They're Marxists, and marijuana to them is the opiate of the masses. Well, maybe. <laughs> 
You know, when I compare what they're doing compared to what the true activists I know on the issue are doing, um, it becomes less than pathetic, and that's what we want to highlight today as well. And certainly they're a far cry from the kinds of discussions that were going on on the pages of the National Post on the issue. They went into it quite extensively, didn't see anything similar in the free press other than this coverage of two people getting arrested at the protest in the park, which is down from one last year. Last year it was three. So um, The fact that, that anywhere arrested is a travesty. Well, if it, if it was for pot, yes. Oh, yes, <laughs> yeah. that's what I'm talking right. about. So, uh, anyways, in a series of articles and essays that the um, National Post did... Um, it was called In Pondering the Prohibition of Pot. That was the name of the series. And they were a full-page full, full page series, two, three pages sometimes in a day. And uh, where in which, go figure, they were pondering the prohibition of pot. I thought I'd draw our attention to the highlights of this series, and we'll see where that takes us in our discussion, because I picked out some key articles out of the whole series, couldn't possibly go through, through them all. And some surprising uh, points brought up, and I thought I'd focus on what I thought were the essentials of each article as I looked at. The first one was called Forbidden Fruit, in which Mark Haskell Smith um, um, has a new book called The Heart of Dankness, in which he explores, quote, our relationship with the cannabis plant. This appeared April 19th, and in which he focused on the expression dank, which I'd never heard before, uh, something he discovered while talking to someone he interviewed in a European cannabis shop where cannabis is legally consumed. And he writes, he asked, living dank, what does that mean? And the response was, well, in Europe, we have a big underground movement that is very dank, for sure. It's spelled D-A-N-K. I've heard of dank. Have Deep, dark, and dank. Like yeah, a, okay. The bottom of a hole. Well, maybe that's where it comes from. People who have very little in common apart from this plant. It goes through all of Europe. It's rich people, poor people, cultivated people, sporty people, couch lock people. That's the funny thing about it. It's a very powerful connectory, like a true underground, he says. Yes, he says, because the plant has been illegal for so long, everyone who's ever tried it knows or has had the feeling of doing something wrong. But when they try it, they don't feel it's so wrong. The discrepancy you get from knowing what you're doing is illegal, but feeling good about what you're doing and that you're not doing anything wrong, this feeling creates a bond between people. It's an interesting comment, that is I thought, very interesting. because it talks about the culture. And he says, I think I know what Franco's talking about, the person he was interviewing, that bond is the glue that holds the counterculture together, and that's true. So just a point for thought right there. Chris Selly writes another uh, uh, article called Canada's Incoherent Drug Policy, which was very interesting. Um, the byline on it was cracking down on otherwise law-abiding people for growing small amounts of marijuana is patently insane. That ran April 17. And he asks, did Stephen Harper experience some kind of drugs-related epiphany at the summit of the Americas? He somehow managed to make Canada's drug policies even less coherent. On Thursday, Andrew McDougall, Mr. Harper's press secretary, had vowed the Prime Minister, quote, would be a strong voice in any drugs-related debate, against liberalization, that is. Quote, the government strategy is, in fact, completely in the opposite direction, said Mr. McDougall, and he was absolutely right. And yet, there was Mr. Harper in Cartaniga on Sunday, pretty much declaring the war on drugs a failure. Quote, I think what everyone believes and agrees with, and to be frank myself, is that the current approach is not working, he said. He didn't just say that the war against the drug cartels isn't succeeding. He said the whole approach isn't working. 
It's not clear what we should do, said Mr. Harper, but in terms of simple answers like legalization or criminalization, let me remind you of why these drugs are illegal, he warned. They're illegal because they quickly and totally, with many of the drugs, which assumes he's talking about more than marijuana, right, destroy people's lives and our people... And people are willing to make lots of money out of selling those products, end quote. So there's the same old lunacy, writes Chris Sully. It's amazing that it still needs to be said, but one more time. Prohibition ensures the overall given supply of any given drug will be far more dangerous, if not more addictive, than it would be otherwise. Criminals have only made as much money trafficking drugs, only killed as many scores of thousands of people that they have because those drugs are illegal. And then another article. This one's interesting. This is Barbara Kay. She's been a guest on the show a couple of times. And she writes April 18th, a second look at legalization. And she says, I used to think that marijuana should be decriminalized but not legalized and now I think it should be legalized as well. I haven't changed my opinion that marijuana is, for many weak-willed individuals, a gateway to harder drugs. Nor do I think it is as harmless as pot pushers like to make it out to be. But the fairness argument is too compelling to continue to ignore. Tobacco is harmful in any amount and remains perfectly legal. Alcohol, while benign in reasonable quantities, is a gateway to alcoholism, the most intractable and damaging of addictions, which causes far more domestic and social misery than marijuana possibly could. And finally, there comes a certain tipping point when resisting the common will for no easily defined reason stops making social or economic sense. I'd like to see marijuana legalized but highly regulated. The government should oversee its growth, its potency, and its distribution. Legalization will no doubt come with its own set of problems. Legalization will embroil government, insurance companies, schools, and the Medicare system in such a torturous maze of regulatory and enforcement interference with their privacy that potheads and the libertarians who see legalization as a liberating panacea will yearn for the paradoxical simplicity of illegal but unencumbered access. Wow. <laughs> Can you imagine that, Robert? Actually, I think she, she's hit the nail on the I head. I think she did, too, because, yeah. wow, that, I've said that on the show, too. I, I said, don't be looking for legalization as such. Or regulation well, or decriminalization. Not not a special regulation regulation for the for the drug if it were sold it should be regulated and controlled like anything else that's sold in public in a store you know just like any other substance like any other product just the market regulation you know well, protecting the market in that sense if you're if you're a businessman yes yeah you wouldn't tax it extra you would just tax it the same as you would tax any product the thing is that you can't tax it you know why it's a plant you can grow it in your backyard there's absolutely no way that they would be able to control the supply of it now, and there's no way they can control the supply of it then. No, I think that's a separate issue, too. I agree with you. They, they can't do it at that level, but I would think that those who did go into into uh, commercial sales, because yes. they would be doing it in a store, would just be paying normal taxes like commercial they would on sales, anything else. Yeah, sure. I don't think that would The thing be is, I don't even think it'll be very much uh, commercialized, because once it's legal, people will be able to grow it anywhere. Yes, well. And then I have an article here by, um, who's this by? Jesse Klein. Dreaming of a pot-friendly world, April 20th in the National Post. This is in his review of Mark Haskell Smith's Heart of Dankness. He wrote a review of it, and he writes, The electorate in the Golden State approved a measure to legalize the use and cultivation of marijuana for medical purposes in 1996. It is now incredibly easy for Californians to obtain marijuana legally, even though many people abuse the original spirit of the law. 
And this reminds me of Canada's early abortion decriminalization process where you had to go to a doctor and go through that whole process. How much of that is going on anymore? To get permission, I mean, you know, the, the trio of doctors and all that. Um, and he writes, a whole industry of doctors who prescribe cannabis and dispensaries that distribute it has sprung up, th- sprung up throughout the state. In 2010, there were more than 800 dispensaries operating in Los Angeles alone. Imagine that, 800. Yet cannabis is still illegal on the federal level, and the Obama administration has been even more tough on medical marijuana growers and dispensaries than its predecessor. By the way, this is a constant thing. The Democrats are always worse than the Republicans when it comes to pot laws and enforcing them. It's always been a pattern of something I've observed. I think that there's something uh, else going on here. We see whether it's the Republicans or the Democrats, liberals or conservatives in power, it doesn't matter. They all have the same hard line on uh, marijuana laws. In so terms of policy, yes. So there's got to be something else going on there. The bureaucrats, the police, the attorney ge- attorneys general, whatever, are basically trying to uh, mm-hmm. convince them otherwise. Somebody's telling them right. something, some lies in their ears. And he continues, he writes, Canada banned marijuana in 1923, and since that time we've gone from, get this, having virtually no pot smokers to the situation today where roughly 30% of the population has tried the drug at least once. So without prohibition, we had zero. With prohibition, we have 30% of the population, and that's probably very conservative. A 2002 report from the Senate Special Committee on Illegal Drugs found that 2 million adult Canadians had used pot in the last year, but only 0.85% of the users were charged with possession, which is why I say it's potluck if you get arrested, mm-hmm. right? It's such a, a, a long shot. You almost have to look for it, which will lead us into our issue discussing Mark Emery shortly. Some people have smoked on the steps of police courts or courts and police stations and have not been arrested. Right. It depends who you are. It depends who you are. Despite these findings, there are still a significant number of Canadians whose lives are ruined because of relatively minor drug crimes. This will only get worse now that the Harper government has passed its omnibus crime bill, which imposes harsh mandatory minimum sentences on anyone who grows more than six plants or shares a joint with a friend. Shares a joint with a friend or even offers to share a joint with a friend. (laughs) It doesn't have to be this way, he writes. Treating adults who choose to consume marijuana like criminals causes more harm than good. Those who enjoy marijuana shouldn't be treated any differently from those who choose what vino they want to ingest. (laughs) And then the last one to look at here before we go to the break is from George Will from the Washington Post, which was, of course, reprinted in the National Post on April 17, is legalizing narcotics worth it? Now, I'm wondering if he's speaking to a greater issue. Yes, he is. He's including a large number of the other drugs, too, because he begins off saying marijuana probably provides less than 25% of the cartel's revenues. Legalizing it would take perhaps $10 billion from some bad and violent people. But the cartels would still make much more money from cocaine, heroin, and meta-amphetamines than they would from than they would lose, sorry, from marijuana legalization. Sixteen states in the District of Columbia have legalized mar- medical marijuana, a messy semi-legalization that breeds cynicism regarding the law. In 1990, 24% of Americans supported full legalization. Today, 50% do. Would the public health problems resulting from legalization be a price worth paying for injuring the cartels and reducing the cost of enforcement? We're probably going to find out, he writes. 
And uh, I don't know, there's a lot of positive thought that we're going to see drug laws liberalized. I have heard this talk for decades, and it never has happened. Mark Emery made an interesting comment just recently where he said that if you want to do this, it has to be a joint effort, uh, pardon <laughs> the pun, on the part of Canada, the United States, and Mexico together. Because once one does it, I think that the, uh, the ramifications for cross-border uh, issues um, mm -hmm. ratchets up. So it should be a, a joint effort. Well... Speaking of Mark Emery, that's, he also came up, of course, in the conversation in the National Post. And um, so I thought, before we go to break, I just want to let everyone know the following excerpt that we're going to hear is from, believe it or not, the National Geographic special called Cannabis Nation, produced back in 2007 or so, which was before the Prince of Pot, Mark Emery, was extradited under the Harper government to a U.S. prison for five years, which he's now halfway through. So on the other side, we'll update you on the status of Mark Emery, who is today about halfway through that five-year sentence, and we'll hear what he has to say after this. Excellent. Can, 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 I, can I ask you a yeah. question? How, how do you get any work done here? Oh, well, first of all, I work till about between midnight and 2 in the morning. So I'll be here for another 12 hours. And I started around 10 o'clock. I had to see my bail supervisor at 9.30 this morning. So, um, so it'll be a long day. But they're all going to be long days until I get this magazine to the printer. What's your objective? Mm. Well, for people like these visitors, I want them to go away thinking, hey, we should do that where we live. And so that they imitate me. We're here! We're high! Get you! Emery has funded his global activism by selling marijuana seeds internationally, reportedly making millions of dollars. We he says he's paid taxes on every penny. I have sold millions of seeds. Millions of seeds. And I had a, I had a very good reason for selling those seeds. I wanted to defeat the U.S. government's war on drugs. We did raise a lot of money, and then we gave it all away, including to over a million dollars to people in the United States, as well as millions in Canada and around the world, to subsidize a mass movement to try and get marijuana legalized. Many nations tolerate recreational marijuana use. Most famously, in 1976, the Netherlands stopped enforcing bans on the possession and sale of small amounts of pot. Spain, Italy, Portugal, and Belgium also adopted more tolerant stances. But in January of 2009, the UK plans on tightening their marijuana laws. Under federal law, there is no difference between selling a seed or selling pot. And this is why Emery is among America's most wanted. The government wants him extradited, but Canada will not oblige. If extradited to the U.S., Emery could face years in a federal prison. Excellent. Why did you choose this kind of life? I mean. Wouldn't you like to do something that doesn't, um, you know, put a bounty on you, essentially? No, I'm, I'm flattered to be thought of so highly by the U.S. Justice Department that they would use such hyperbole and describe me as a villain. One thing is certain. Much cannabis today has no resemblance to the plant of our ancestors. 
This weed, the proverbial sow's ear of yesterday's cannabis, has become a silk purse. Life seems to be very complicated in every place of the world. Most of us are anxious from time to time. Most of us are depressed from time to time. We want to change that. And uh, in, <clears throat> in many cases, such a change can be brought forward by cannabis. So that's why people use it. That's all. Welcome back. I understand we have caller Scott on the line. Scott, are you there? Yes. Great show today, guys. Um, I just want to make a quick comment, and then I'll, I'll let you respond. Okay. I just want to get your thoughts on the bill never decriminalized marijuana or legalized it, because I believe that the government and law enforcement stand to lose so much revenue from finding people. People are always going to want to do what they're told they can't do, and that just goes, like, their revenue stream goes right out the window if it's free to do legally. A lot of truth to that. Can't argue with that. No, I think that there, there's definitely an, an element in the police forces that would agree with you. And I think uh, I think it even goes beyond that. We'll hear a little more on that a little later. Thanks for that, Scott. Um, you know, this next, uh, speaking of Mark Emery, who we just heard from in the National Geographic clip, um, in the following column written by the wife of Mark Emery, Jody Emery, uh, this appeared in the National Post as well under the heading victims of the drug war and she writes after four decades of the war on drugs none of its stated goals have been achieved gangs are richer more powerful increasingly violent and the availability and use of marijuana has only gone up the conservative government steadfastly promises to continue wasting more money and damaging more lives by expanding the same failed policy but beyond the economic cost of keeping marijuana illegal there is a human cost as well Peaceful, non-violent citizens are at risk of being locked up away from their families and friends, losing their jobs and homes, while being saddled with criminal records. I know this cost in human suffering very well. My husband, Mark Emery, is, a medium security, is in a medium-security U.S. federal prison, serving a five-year sentence for selling marijuana seeds through the mail. He used revenue from the seed sales to fund peaceful, anti-prohibition campaigns and political activism from 94 to 2005, advocating for legalization to end the violence and criminal control of the industry. The Drug Enforcement Administration even boasted in a press release that his arrest was a significant blow to the marijuana legalization movement and that legalizing lobbyists now have one less pot of money to rely on, end quote. My husband never hurt anyone, yet the government has caused harm to him, to me, and to everyone who cares for him. The same thing happens every day to each person arrested and imprisoned on marijuana charges. It is morally unjust to make harmless people suffer, yet the government's continued prohibition of cannabis has led to families being torn apart. Politicians, police, and anyone else who supports prohibition are supporting organized crime and the continued devastation of innocent lives in the communities they live in at a price we simply cannot afford, she concludes. Well, in response to that, Matt Gurney at the National Post on April 20th writes under the heading, A Grass Bed of His Own Making, that Jody Emery, the wife of imprisoned Canadian marijuana law reform activist Mark Emery, is correct to call for a decriminalization of marijuana. In that, she and I are in full agreement. But Ms. Emery goes on to lament what she calls the human cost of these silly laws. But getting busted for dope isn't an act of God. It's an entirely predictable consequence of a choice freely made. And that's the real tragedy of it. It is the result of husbands, for reasons principled or otherwise, deciding to flaunt the law and then paying the price for that. 
We can acknowledge the human sadness that entails, and should. But it wouldn't hurt to accept the fact that those separated from friends or family because they ran afoul of dope laws are responsible for their own misfortune. Marijuana laws are stupid. Going to jail for breaking them, however, is even stupider. It's not that it's morally wrong, he writes, or dangerous to society, but it's needlessly risky. Marijuana will eventually be legalized here in Canada, perhaps sooner than we think. That will be a welcome day, but in the meantime, those who continue to break the law should not be surprised when they're treated as lawbreakers, end quote. Now, I thought that was a shameful and pathetic response, actually, Robert. What he's saying is that there's no difference between principled or unprincipled action, that Mark's choice was freely made, but the creation of our silly laws apparently is not the consequence of a choice freely made. You see the difference? He's accepting the man-made as the metaphysical perfect Ayn Rand (laughs) example. Uh, Acting on principle, he thinks, for what is right is stupid, and expecting that pot will eventually be legalized with no evidence or proof that that's ever going to happen other than an act of God that he's already rejected. I don't know where he's going to see that legalization happen without people like Mark Emery. He says his marijuana laws are stupid, as Gurney says, but so is his argument that Mark should not be surprised when he's treated as a lawbreaker. You know, Gurney's got no idea. He does not know Mark Emery and is probably incapable of comprehending the greater issue, actually, given his expressed opinions. Mark did write a letter back to him in the National Post, and he said Matt Gurney fails to realize that the immoral laws of prohibition manufacture the lawbreakers who go to jail for cannabis. If these substances enjoyed or abused by tens of millions of North Americans were sold in regulated dosages and at fair prices, none of the millions of the drug war prisoners in jails in North and South America would be there, nor would half the prisons. People might be stupid, as Matt Gurney suggests, when they break the law to make a living with illegal drugs, but the people at the top who keep the law intact despite its inevitable tragic consequences to all society, including those incarcerated and their families and loved ones, are truly practicing an evil agenda and are fully conscious of what they are doing. Mark Emery, prisoner 40252086, Yazoo City Medium Security Prison, Mississippi. I'm going to give the last word on this issue to Mark Emery himself. The following feature is an exclusive to CHRW and was recorded by Alex Jarowski back in 2009-2010 during Mark Emery's farewell tour here in London at the Aeolian Hall. The Mark Emery you're about to hear is a little bit more the Mark Emery I knew when I worked with him during our formation years at the Freedom Party, except that the pot issue was never an issue that was ever on our agenda when we were together. This is the Mark Emery who went to jail in Ontario over Sunday shopping after which Ontarians were no longer penalized for shopping or opening their stores on Sundays. This is the Mark Emery who is not the anarchist, but a staunch advocate of the democratic process and our participation in it. This is the Mark Emery who is not focused on the pot, but on the principle. This is the Mark Emery who has full knowledge that he will be sitting in an American jail for being an advocate of principle. This is Mark Emery today. So get ready for Mark Emery tomorrow when he is released in another two and a half years. You know, to hear it today with Mark halfway through his sentence, I must confess, magnifies the power of the following words to the nth degree. Whatever you might think about pot or your personal preferences with regard to it, and when you hear this, think about this. Compared to what you are, compare what you are about to hear with what you're hearing from the, at the lefty pot rallies and occupation protests on the issue. The difference is astonishing. 
The difference is left and right. The difference is the freedom factor. It's the last five minutes of Mark's tour uh, after an hour and a half explosive presentation. This is what Mark Emery would really have liked to have said to Matt Gurney if there weren't a set of bars between them. Hold on to your seats. Should be taxed and regulated and sold out there and open and transparent society. That's how we should be living in an open, transparent society where we talk about all these things, where we're candid about all these things, where the truth is not illegal, where you can be yourself without being hunted down like an animal. All these, all these lies, everything you were taught about drugs in school is a lie. Your teachers all did it all. They took all those drugs, and now they don't say a word. And they don't say a word because when you become a teacher, you have to promise the Board of Education when you sign your contract that you told them about any criminal activity you may have ever done. And so if you admit you took drugs and you didn't tell them that when you looked for your job, and I assure you you didn't, then you're going to get kicked out. You can't admit to knowing anything about drugs if you're a teacher. You've got to pretend like you went to college and you didn't do any of it. But you know what? Surveys have shown that the number one faculty in universities that do lots of drugs are lawyers, and then the second highest one is teachers. Teachers and lawyers doing lots of drugs, and teachers oppress us by lying to us, and lawyers are the judges that send us to jail, and they know all about drugs, but they don't care because they sold out to something higher, to power, corruption, power over us. There's nothing more corrupting than the ability of someone to give you power over another human being you don't deserve. It turns you into an evil human being almost overnight. They want to put us in jail. They want to put us in jail. They want to keep their thumb, their boot. You know, there's a line in the book 1984 where Winston is being told by the Grand Inquisitor, you want to see the face of the future? The face of the future for the people is a boot pushed hard down on their neck. And it never lets up. That's the face of the future, Winston was told. That's what your government's going to be doing. Because you know what? If I can be sent to the United States Federal Penitentiary for a five-year term for selling seeds, and every last one of you is vulnerable to be victimized at some point in your life for telling the truth. Is that how you're going to live? Are you going to live like cowards? Are you going to know? Absolutely right. You back. Are you going to live like cowards? I didn't hear that very loud. Well, that's better. It's better because I'm going to need an army of people out there fighting for liberty, fighting for the truth, because you know what? No one else will do it. It's the lonely, single, solitary human being that has stood up for everything in this world that was any damn good, just like single, solitary individuals invented everything that's every damn good. Steve Jobs is just one man. Bill Gates is just one man. William Shakespeare was just one man. Paul McCartney's one man. I'm just one man. These people did good things for you to make this a freer, better, more beautiful world. And you have an obligation to that past. You have an obligation if you smoke marijuana to make sure you hold our legacy up high and stand up for the truth. And do not put up with any of this hypocritical, horrible bull. These haters, these, these killers, these murderers, these perpetrators of lies and deceit. That's who you're up against. And you get out there and vote. You know, most of the potheads in this room didn't vote. Didn't vote last time. Oh, it doesn't do any good. Well, listen, I'll guarantee you one thing. Not voting absolutely doesn't do any good. Absolutely not voting will not change anything in our parliament. You've got... Because when you get out and vote, you learn about what is worth voting for. And if there's nothing worth voting for, then you run as a candidate yourself and you educate yourself and you educate others. You have an obligation to your children to make sure they live in a freer world than the Nazi dictatorship that's being planned for us now. Absolutely. You get out and vote. 
And you write those senators, and you stay more connected. You get involved, because we're sliding into a despotism where we have the greatest potential on this earth to be a brilliant, tolerant society, the greatest place on earth. You've got to help make that happen. And while I'm in jail, I expect to get letters from you. And I don't want to hear any letters that say, gee, I'm still in jail. It must suck. Yeah, it sucks. I'm here. I know that it sucks. What I want to hear from you when I'm in jail is what you're doing to make this place, a, this country a better place. What you're doing to make prohibition go away. What you're doing to make this a peaceful, more friendly, more honest, transparent, healthier society where people have the right idea about what marijuana is and what it isn't. So that's your marching orders. That's what I have to tell you. I don't want to think... And always remember, I am extremely proud of having been from London, Ontario. London, Ontario... London, Ontario made me the person I am. And when I walk into this world, no matter what happens to me, I am your native son. I am one of you. I came from this place. And wherever I go in life, I don't want you to forget it, that I represent possibly the honesty and truth that we should enshrine in our society. I'm in jail because I did nothing more than tell the truth forcefully, deliberately, unrelentingly, and unrepentingly. Thank you very much. Catherine Pulaski will handle the formal introductions later. Councillor Deanna Troy is pregnant. She... She is going to have a baby. A baby? This is a surprise? More so for me. This pregnancy is unlike anything I have ever encountered. The fetus is about halfway through the first trimester, about six weeks old. Now, understand, we believe that conception took place 11 hours ago. What? A life form of unknown origin and intent is breeding right now inside Council Troy. Our purpose here is to determine what is to be done about this discussion. Wait, now let me get this straight. Deanna was impregnated by what? Doctor, what do the tests show? Is it a, a humanoid, an alien? It's a male human. Or in this case, half human, half betazoid. Exactly the same as Deanna. In every way. In fact, there is nothing to indicate that there are any genetic patterns other than hers. I don't think this is a random occurrence. I think there's a purpose here, a reason. What? I don't know. Captain, obviously the pregnancy must be terminated. For the safety of the ship and the crew. Warp, you can't assume the intent was belligerent. That is the safest assumption. Captain, this is a life form. Not to allow it to develop naturally, but deny us the opportunity to study it. If the fetus is aborted, laboratory analysis is still possible. Doctor, is there any health risk to Counselor Troy if the fetus is aborted? Captain. Do whatever you feel is necessary to protect the ship and the crew. But know this. I'm going to have this baby. 
seems that the discussion is over. Welcome back to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where you can give us a call at 519-661-3600 to join us in the conversation. You can email us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, and um, we'd love to hear from you. So, from one is controversial... over or just beginning? <laughs> As they said in the clip, the discussion is over. Well, the discussion of pot's over for now, but what we're going to do is talk, take on another controversial topic, and that is abortion. I thought this issue was uh, aborted many years ago with Morgenthaler, but no, we bring it up again with the private member's bill, Bill M-312, put forward by conservative backbencher Stephen Woodworth. And uh, he's brought this controversial topic back onto the agenda of Parliament and in the media. It's always been there, more or less, but more or less on the sidelines. And I personally have found this issue to be very interesting. Not because I'm a woman like, like the, <laughs> or anything like the that. The issue broadly or just this current... The broad uh, issue has all of the facets of a great philosophic issue. Yes, that's I think true. Of, you know? um, just think. Uh, well, it's country, a basic life and death issue, isn't it? It's life and death. Yeah. The country is split almost evenly down the middle about um, pro and, uh, and, and con. Um, the use of emotion um, the, uh, for, in the argument, the use of uh, science in the argument, the use of language... To define your opponents, pro-choice, pro-life, anti-abortion, etc., all very much charged language. The misdirection to scientific argument over philosophic argument. The violence and murder committed by some fanatics on one side versus the so-called murder of people on the other. So there's lots to um, make this a, a great topic of philosophic discussion. Now, the lack of discussion on the part of so-called pro-lifers as to the appropriate punishment for women who have their pregnancies aborted and their doctors who perform them is also very interesting. And that's something that you and I have mentioned in the past before. So you want to outlaw abortions? What's the appropriate crime or, or, or punishment, punishment for such yeah. a crime? Do you want to kill the doctor? Do you want to put the, uh, the, the woman to death for doing it? You know, how, how many One years year, in jail? five years, yeah. ten years? Twenty years? It's supposedly murder. So maybe they should be put to death, put um, put into jail for for life, you know, if it, if it's murder. But don't come out and say, you know, ban abortion without saying exactly what you think the punishment should be for such a crime. It's quite interesting, personally. Since well, I'll never forget the day when Ann Coulter told us what she would do with people. <laughs> Kill them. <laughs> Kill them. Right. Just kidding. And then she says, "Just kidding." But again, I don't think she is. I think she is in. In the literal sense, but she is not in the literal. In the, but she would like to see, I think, perhaps death penalty for such a for such a crime in her eyes. Well, or somebody locked away because she said, you know, whatever the legal limits are allowed. So, you know, people hide how they really feel about this a little bit too. I think in terms of how far they would be willing to go to impose their view on someone. I don't know. Hmm. Anyway, thank you, Mr. Woodworth, for putting this bill back on the table. His bill is calling for a special committee of the House to answer questions about the medical evidence about the definition of human being, with the committee to report back on how to affirm our current lack of a law on abortion, abortion, <clears throat> or how to amend or replace the criminal code section uh, to make it illegal, which is quite obviously the intent of his bill. Let's get some definitions out of the way first. <clears throat> Nobody 
of any degree of intelligence. That is, nobody who doesn't believe that the Earth is 6,000 years old and the dinosaur fossils were put in the ground as they were by some god to fool us, disputes the following definitions and origins of life. When you're talking about life, what do you mean? Life began four billion years ago. There's life. You're not going to stop it. It's out there. Life, life began four billion years ago. Human life began 200,000 years ago, anatomically. That is, 200,000 years ago, there were anatomically correct humans out there. As we but, know them today. Uh, yeah. They, they look like us. Yeah. But actually, they probably look more like Africans. <laughs> but in the, uh, in the Rift Valley of Kenya. But behaviorally, human life began about 50,000 years ago. That's when language was developed and we began thinking and communi communicating in symbols. We began to act with some sort of reason. So we've only been around in that respect for 50,000 years. Genetically, individuality begins with the zygote, as long as it doesn't segment, that is. An egg is fertilized and cell division begins. That's the beginning of a genetic individual life. No Not of life itself. Because no, 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 no. It came from life. two things that were already alive to begin with. Correct. Now, this is what I found is, is interesting. Segmentation into twins, triplets, etc., can occur up to 21 days after conception. So it could be said that individuality is in doubt until after 21 days post-conception. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. Now, if you believe in such supernatural things like a soul and that such a thing comes into existence at conception, as some do as millions do, then you have to ask the question, what happens to the soul when the zygote segments two weeks later into twins? Does each twin now have half a soul? Of course, it's not a problem if you're a ginger because they have no souls. <laughs> now, fetuses are viable at about 24 to 25 weeks. Prior to this period, they're totally dependent on the mother for life. There's another bit of a, a demarcation point. And there, actually, there doesn't seem to be much contention historically for aborting uh, before that time. Mm -hmm. After that time, then the issue gets really tricky. Now, most reasonable people and informed people agree on all of those facts that I just presented. Human life, individual human life, can begin right at conception. I don't think, there's no doubt about that. The genetic material is there. The thing is, and the question you have to ask, is not when human life begins, but when do human rights begin? Because that's what this discussion is all about. It's, it's about a the action of political the state. Discussion. And, and what is being called for is the action of the state. That's what is right. the proper action for the state to make? It's so not the, about personal choice or the personal choices that people will make. It's about the choice the state chooses to do, right. whether or not it chooses to protect somebody's rights or not. Now, the thing is that these facts are basically irrelevant, like I say, to the political and the philosophic discussion surrounding the question on should abort, uh, aborting a pregnancy be against the law. The question is entirely philosophic, and Paul McKeever, the leader, the leader of the Freedom Party of Ontario, spent, has sent an open letter to the members of the federal parliament which addresses the true nature of this debate. His letter was in response to an opinion piece in the National Post by Andrew Coyne, and Coyne's letter was entitled, The idea we can't debate abortion is unworthy of a democratic country. Now, when we come back from this break, I'm going to read from Paul McKeever's rebuttal on that because he touches on many of the points I think that should be thought about when, it, when we talk about abortion. So we'll be back right after this. Your report to the Federation was a tissue of lies. You described environmental, physical, cultural conditions that would make Gideon a paradise. And so it was. A long, long time ago, what we described was true. 
The atmosphere on Gideon has always been germ-free, and the people flourished in their physical and spiritual perfection. Eventually, even the lifespan increased. Death became almost unknown to us. It occurred only when the body could no longer regenerate itself. And that happens now only to the very old. Those are conditions most people would envy. But Gideon did not find it enviable. The birth rate continued to rise and the population grew until now Gideon is encased in a living mass who can find no rest, no peace, no joy. And why haven't you introduced any of the new techniques to sterilize men and women? Every organ renews itself. It would be impossible. Then let your people learn about the devices to safely prevent conception. The Federation will provide anything you need. But you see, the people of Gideon have always believed that life is sacred. That the love of life is the greatest gift. That is the one unshakable truth of Gideon. This overwhelming love of life has developed our regenerative capacity and our great longevity. And the great misery which you now face. That is bitterly true, Captain. Nevertheless, we cannot deny the truth which shaped our evolution. We are incapable of destroying or interfering with the creation of that which we love so deeply. Life, in every form, from fetus to developed being. It is against our tradition, against our very nature. We simply could not do it. Yet you can kill a young girl. We're trying to readjust the life cycle of an entire civilization. You're killing your own daughter, how can you do that? My daughter hoped to make you feel the agony of Gideon. But it was impossible, no stranger could realize the horror that life can be here. I will not beg for your understanding of my personal grief, nor will I parade it for you to gain your cooperation. My love for my daughter is too deep for display. My pride in her runs even deeper. My daughter freely chose to do what she is doing, as the people of Gideon are free to choose. What I'll start is uh, with Paul McKeever's rebuttal then to uh, Andrew Coyne's letter. Mm -hmm. Here's some of what Paul says. The issue is philosophic, not scientific. Botany can tell us when and how an acorn becomes a tree, but the issue of whether acorns are trees is a philosophic issue, not a scientific one. And the answer is, they are not. A is A, as Leibniz expressed Aristotle's law of identity. And that philosophic law is why the parliamentarian who eats a walnut does not thereby eat a tree. There's nothing for a parliamentary committee to learn from medical evidence about the production of a human being. The material facts are simple and widely acknowledged by virtually everyone on all sides of the abortion debate. Human sperm impregnates human egg, either within or without, out, outside of a woman's body. Human cells multiply within the body of the host human woman, whether or not it's her egg. 
Over time, so long as the woman continues to supply the growing cellular mass with moving blood, oxygen, nutrients, nutrients, uh, warmth, and a means of passing waste, the mass of cells will grow and differentiate and increasingly take the form of a human body. If the process does not fail and is not aborted, the process of creating a human being will be completed with an existing um, f- uh, from the uh, woman's body and a, and a detachment from the woman's bloodstream, and exiting from the woman's body, rather. At that point, the woman who created the human being ceases to play a biologically necessary role in the survival of the new human being. The baby human being now must eat with its own mouth, breathe with its own lungs, defecate and urinate, and otherwise live as all other human beings do, independently from the body of another human being. Nobody, not even Mr. Woodworth, is ignorant of any of these facts, all of which are supported with science and are regularly taught easily to grade school children, including those who later get elected to Parliament. What is the essential nature of a human being, Paul McKeever continues. The answer to that question is determined not by the alleged words of Woodward's alleged God, but by the physical, scientifically determined evidence that Woodward's claims to value so highly. That evidence makes it clear that the thing that distinguishes human beings from all other things, living or non-living, is a human being's capacity and necessity to reason. Humans, in short, are the rational animals. Human beings do not live by instinct. Being a rational animal, a woman aiming to survive and achieve her own happiness, must make the right decisions concerning whether or not to allow someone else to take her life, liberty, and property. If she applies her rational faculty determining to determine the facts of reality and, and to thereby make and act upon the decisions she must make if she wishes to survive and achieve happiness, she will survive and be happy. Among other things, because she is a human being and because thinking and choosing is the essence of human nature, a woman can and does decide whether or not to use her body to create a child to threaten to murder, imprison, or expropriate her for terminating an unwanted pregnancy is to discourage her from thinking and choosing. It is to punish her for being a human being. For being an animal that, by its very nature, applies reason to the task of surviving and achieving happiness. Laws that threaten to murder, imprison, or expropriate a woman for having decided to have an abortion are laws that seek not to defend human nature, but to defeat it. They are laws that at their root consider human nature, independent, rationally self-serving thought, to be inherently evil. They are laws that seek to dehumanize human beings. And that's from Paul McKeever in his rebuttal to Andrew Coyne's letter from the National Post, which he sent off to all of the members of Parliament as an open letter, and he's received a couple of responses. Mm -hmm. Elizabeth May... Uh, responded, the leader of the Green Party in Parliament, uh, though I don't think she's a party in Parliament, she's only one person. And also Thomas Mulcair from the NDP responded with this letter. Basically, um, it seems more like just a form letter, but apparently he says the New Democrat opposes the motion, and there's no surprise there. The NDP have always been um, in favor of what you might call the pro-choice side of the debate. No, they're in favor of the free choice side. (laughs) if you know what I mean free in the sense that they want everybody else to pay for a person's abortion and that is something that uh, you and I would would disagree with Correct. we do not believe that others should pay for someone to have an abortion 
Mind you, we don't believe that the government should be involved in paying for any medical treatment that's, whatsoever. That's the reason. It's just a consistent extension from that. And it's the same thing. You know, Elizabeth May said the same thing, basically, that they would like to see the government continue to pay for abortions. Sure. So, you know, they're both reds. <laughs> what do you expect? Yeah. You know, it's sad when any potential doesn't reach actuality. And that's what a, a fetus is. It's a potential. You know, if you think about sentience, you think about what makes an animal aware, conscious, sentient. I would submit that a dog has more sentience than an unborn fetus, in that an unborn fetus is basically tabula rasa. It has some instinctive actions and motions, sure, but it has no independent thought as such because it is tabula rasa. Nothing has been put into that brain yet. There's nothing to think about. There's nothing to think about. It hasn't even perceived the world yet. Mm -hmm. So I can have a conversation with my dog, actually. <laughs> They're <laughs> much more intelligent. And yet we can kill a dog. I can bring it to the vet tomorrow and have it put down. No questions asked. Well, maybe a couple of questions, but you can do it. So a fetus is a potential. It is not an actual. But if you think about this, for the woman, it is either to become... There's another potential there, and that is on the side of the woman. That woman can either become a mother with all the obligations associated or, for some, remain childless and develop into other areas which may not be possible with the responsibilities associated with being a mother. But in the end, the choice is always hers to make. Of the two lives at stake in the decision, there's absolutely no question as to the rights of the woman. They are self-evident and they must be protected. And it's always struck me as hypocritical for those opposed to a woman's right to choose for herself what she is liable to do with her body to turn around and be, in general, I'm only speaking in generality here, that segment of society most prone to support laws which violate personal choice on almost every level. Drug laws, which we just talked about. Social mores, prudish standards of dress and behavior, laws against sexual preference and even support for the death penalty. They seem to come from that one same segment of society in general and i'm mm -hmm. being very general here in conclusion to me being pro-life means being in favor of not only life itself but in what it means to be a human being being able to live for oneself rationally well, and you're ever. saying you mean being pro-choice right i'm being pro-life oh okay uh being um able to live for oneself rationally and having your right to your life, liberty, and property protected by a government. Life is more than just a bunch of cells. Life is being human. And that's all we're talking about here is human life. And human and life is Distinguishing means, it from other life, yeah. That's right. I mean, we're not talking about plants here or squirrels. We're talking about being human beings. And being a human being means being rational, means reasonable, means having rights, means having potential and actual Actuality. It means choice as well. So, uh, to sum it up, pro-life means being pro-choice. Okay, I see. I see the logic there. Now, I'm just thinking too, from the other point of view, a lot of people who are into laws against abortion don't see it as the issue of the rights of the woman. They actually see the fact that the child has some kind of rights, or the unborn child, or whatever. And I've always said in the basic argument that you know. Even when that child's born, it doesn't have any rights that we understand to be rights. We start to ascribe a, rights to individuals in gradual steps. Yes, they begin with a status, and that's a status mm -hmm. after birth. Whereas you say, they become an individual. And I'll tell you right now, if we didn't live in a free and democratic society, that status would be moot. It wouldn't matter. 
just as you see in primitive societies where you know the baby might be left abandoned because a because a tribe cannot have enough food to to feed it or something like that mm-hmm. right they made those choices of self-preservation and it was made even when a child was young until it was you know able to look after itself because when it comes down to the more primitive you are the more self-sustaining the individual has to be that's why when an animal drops out of the womb like a cow or a horse it's ready to run right away pretty much yeah and you know and there's a difference between humanity and the rest of of nature i guess in terms of mammals and animals yes that it for today, Robert? I think that, I think we've basically covered two of the most divisive issues in society today, Bob. Well, we'll see what our listeners think when we get the mail this week. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's it for another week then. Join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, you know what to do. Be right back here. Free Merck. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the everything will be I knew I was getting old. I was performing at this college, and after the show, one of the kids came up to me and said, Dude, you have to come to this party. There's some ecstasy around. I'm like, Well, dude, I can't even have dairy. So, (laughs) run along, baggy pants. Plus, you can't be doing drugs if you have kids. Smoking a joint in your room, and kid comes in. Daddy, there's a monster in my room. Where? What the hell did you bring him in here for? <laughs>